This is KYUK, public radio for the Yukon-Kuskokwim Delta. I'm Francisco Martinez-Cuello. California-based aerospace company ABL Space Systems was hoping for its first successful rocket launch from Kodiak's Pacific Spaceport Complex last month. But instead, a black plume of smoke was visible from the city of Kodiak just minutes after liftoff. KMXT's Kirsten Dobrath reports extensive cleanup is ongoing at the facility, and more information is emerging about the crash. ABL had been trying to launch from Kodiak since the fall and had scrubbed several times leading up to January's launch failure. No one was hurt, but some of the facility's infrastructure was damaged or destroyed when the rocket tumbled back to Earth. Kodiak's Pacific Spaceport Complex is owned and operated by Alaska Aerospace, and ABL is one of two companies that launch from the facility. According to ABL's website, once successfully launched, its RS-1 rocket would be a game-changer for the commercial space industry, requiring less time and fewer people to get satellites into space. Alaska Aerospace's chief executive officer, Milton Keeter, says all launch plans are developed with oversight from the Federal Aviation Administration, which requires a flight safety analysis for each mission. Whenever we have these operations and and testing, the public's interest uh, is high, pretty much the highest. So safety is paramount for us. ABL is still investigating what went wrong, but the company said via Twitter last month that the rocket reached an altitude of more than 700 feet before its engine shut down, about 11 seconds into liftoff. The rocket landed about 60 feet from the launch pad and exploded with almost all its fuel still on board. According to Alaska's Department of Environmental Conservation, more than 5,000 gallons of fuel were released in the crash. ABL did not agree to speak on tape for this story, but a spokesperson for the company said last week that the fuel was contained to an area near the launch site, and most of it likely burned off. Nearby beaches were not impacted by the spill, according to the company. Cleanup crews also scoured the area with metal detectors for any physical debris. Alaska Aerospace and ABL are currently working with DEC and the state's Department of Natural Resources on a remediation plan for the area. Keeter says the process has been moving quickly. We have a draft plan that's going to DEC uh, currently as we speak. January's failed launch isn't the first crash at Kodiak Spaceport, and it comes after a summer of complaints from locals over closures to public recreation areas near the spaceport complex. At a recent Kodiak Island Borough Assembly meeting following the January crash, Interim Borough Manager Dave Conrad said he's heard again from community members about safety near the complex. There's a lot of concern on um, things detonating in the atmosphere and potential pollution and additional restrictions to the road. ABL says it's learned a lot from January's failed launch, and the company still has 15 to 20 employees on the island. The company is currently working on the next iteration of its first commercial rocket. Alaska Aerospace's Keter says they also learned from January's crash and plan to make some modifications to the facility as they rebuild. When the original pads were laid out, uh, the uh, the way they were positioned were probably not the not the best. So what we'll do is reconfigure the way the layout of the pad is. He says they're hoping to have any site cleanup and construction for the rebuild complete in three to four months. In Kodiak, I'm Kirsten Dobrath. A state-funded scholarship program to encourage students to stay in-state for college reported its lowest eligibility numbers last year since the program began in 2010. There are a number of barriers students face to becoming eligible for the Alaska Performance Scholarship. 
and lawmakers are hoping to lower them this session. Alaska Public Media's Kavitha George reports. The Alaska Performance Scholarship, or APS, is a merit-based program that funds post-secondary education for Alaska students attending school in-state. Students who take the scholarship are more likely to stay and build a career in Alaska than those who don't, according to a report released this month. We know we have a workforce shortage. We know we want our students to stay in-state, and this is one of the, this is a solution to that. That's Representative Andy Story, a Juno Democrat. Story has a bill moving through the legislature this session to make it easier for students to access the scholarship. This year's APS Outcomes report found that only 17 percent of the class of 2022 was eligible for the scholarship, the lowest rate since the program's inception. That's not an encouraging sign in a state suffering from out-migration and a shrinking labor pool. In rural parts of the state, the eligibility rate is even lower, just 9 percent in western and northern Alaska. Sana Eford, executive director of the State Commission on Postsecondary Education, which administers the scholarship, says there are a few reasons for the eligibility disparity. The number one barrier that students said was the requirement for the standardized test was an SAT or an ACT. It especially appears to be affecting our rural students. Eford says rural students often have to travel to take standardized tests, which adds extra costs, planning, and time. At the same time, nearly half of scholarship-eligible students are choosing to attend school out of state instead of in Alaska. Eford says that's in part because of funding uncertainty in the University of Alaska system. Reductions and cuts to our university programs over the past few years have an effect on families and students. There were concerns saying, well, we might start a program and then it gets cut or it may not continue. Story's bill would make several changes to the APS program to encourage more students to take advantage of it. It would remove the standardized testing requirement and rely on a student's course load rigor and GPA instead. It would also increase the amount of scholarship money, which hasn't been raised since 2011. Meanwhile, tuition at the University of Alaska Anchorage has increased by 50 percent in that time. Story says these changes and others will help raise scholarship use rates in the short term. But long term, she says, students need more support to prepare them for post-secondary studies and make them aware of scholarship opportunities. That is the key thing is we have to get more families aware of that. And a lot of our districts haven't had guidance counselors, haven't had or are cutting back on them. Story's bill is still moving through committees, along with partner legislation sponsored by Senators Forrest Dunbar and L.V. Gray-Jackson. She says she's heard positive feedback from her colleagues for her bill, but still has some work to do to get enough support for it to pass. Reporting from Anchorage, I'm Kavitha George. On a tiny, remote island in southeast Alaska, scientists recently made a surprising discovery. Wolves are eating sea otters. And not just one every so often. For this pack, it's the wolves' main source of food. Coast Alaska's Angela Denning has this story on a study that's making waves in the scientific community. Pleasant Island is located about a mile south of the mainland near the town of Gustavus. Historically, wolves would occasionally swim over, but had never colonized the island until about a decade ago. 
This pack of wolves really defied all of our predictions. Gretchen Roffler has studied wolves in Southeast for eight years, and she's the lead author of a study published in January on the island's wolves. This new pack killed all the black-tailed deer on the island, a favorite meal for Southeast wolves. They're a territorial species, and an established pack was back on the mainland, preventing a return. Roffler and other scientists assumed they would die off from starvation. But instead, what we found was that the wolves stayed on the island and they continued to reproduce annually. But how? The island is small, just over 20 square miles. What were the wolves eating? Nearby residents in Gustavus noticed new wolf activity on the island where they would hunt deer and pick berries. Greg Streveler is one of them. And his first thought was... Uh-oh. <laughs> Streveler is a retired ecologist with the National Park Service and has studied the area's land and animals for over 50 years. The old all was, you could see what's coming. Having the pack discover the place and there was uh, two wolves instead of one, uh, you could kind of read the tea leaves, you know. Within a few years, Streveler and other residents saw the island's deer disappear. So the scientists stepped in and began to gather data. In 2015, they counted three wolves. A year later, there were 10. By 2017, 13. The wolf densities on this island at this time were some of the highest ever recorded. Raffler's team collected scat and studied it in the lab. And it showed something surprising. Sea otter. And at first I thought, well, this is maybe just a blip. Maybe this is just an occasional thing that wolves are able to do. So they collected wolf hair. While scat shows what wolves have eaten recently, hair gives scientists a longer look. And tests on the hair proved it wasn't a blip. The wolves were eating lots of sea otters, and had been for a while. Ruffler says it underscores how adaptable they are. Something that we assume about wolves is that they really can't live without ungulate prey. Um, they very quickly switched to a diet that primarily consists of sea otters. It really just took a couple years for that to happen. Raffler hasn't witnessed the pack hunt and is hesitant to speculate about it, but Shreveler has a theory. The wolves are not dealing with a healthy group of otters, so I, I don't think it's a big deal for wolves to find some. He says otters in the area might be weak and are hauling out on land more than normal. Sea otters were introduced to the region in the 1960s after being hunted to near extinction. Streveler says it's possible that there are more otters in the area than the habitat can support. Before, nobody here saw ever saw an otter haul out, ever. And so to find a naive group of very easy to catch, very, very delicious critters, uh, oh my God, you know, it's like discovering the Garden of Eden. Scientists don't know how this unusual diet might affect wolves in the long term. They also don't know how long the food source will be around. But Streveler thinks it's temporary. The sea otter wolf thing is probably a flash in the pan. It's not likely there's going to be both a lot of sea otters and a lot of weak sea otters uh, available very long. It's a, a very, very, I think, brief opportunistic window. Reporting for Coast Alaska in Petersburg, I'm Angela Denning. This is KYUK News. I'm Francisco Martinez Cuello. Kuyana for listening. Please share your news tips, comments, or suggestions. You can email us at news at kyuk.org or message us on Facebook. And stay tuned for News Yuktun coming up.